The following is brought to you with no commercial interruptions. Listen now. Okay, just hit record and just talk a little bit so I can sure, get, in hello. The, get in the Test- groove. Testicles, testicles, one, two, <laughs> three. How's that? Can you hear me now? Three? <laughs> I think that's a spinal tap joke. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, th- th- I don't know why, but it reminds me of that silly joke. I think Eddie told it, told it on stage once. Um, how many members of Pearl Jam does it take to change a light bulb? How many members of Pearl Jam does it take to change a light bulb? Change? We won't change for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's goofy, but I like it. No, yeah, I think I've heard the same about like, uh, I don't know, punk bands or some yeah. other sorts of things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it changes just like all the other, just like all the other band jokes, where the butt of the joke is either the bass player or the drummer. <laughs> right, right. It's the guy who hangs out with a bunch of musicians. Yeah, that's a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Something's like a what do you call a a bass player without a girlfriend? Homeless. <laughs> wow. Welcome to season one, episode seventeen of the Better Band Podcast, an all-encompassing trip through the Pearl Jam catalog. Hosted by Brandon Palomo. Each episode, my guest and I go track by track through every album, soundtrack, and single to discover why you simply can't find a better band. Brandon back on the Better Band Podcast with my guest today, Fred Galpern. Hello, Fred. Hello, Brandon. How are you? I am doing well. And you? I'm doing great. All right. We're here today to talk about the song, Acoustic Number One from Pearl Jam 20 soundtrack, which they say found on a, uh, a stray tape in the bottom of a box marked Singles. It's got uh, Stone playing guitar and Eddie's quote-unquote singing, sort of mumbling through in <laughs> typical Eddie fashion. Um, but I'm not going to talk about the song right now, because first, I have to ask, Fred, when did you first hear of Pearl Jam? I first heard of Pearl Jam in, it must have been 91. I was in a college in Philadelphia at the University of the Arts. Um, the college was right in center city, Philly, and we didn't have any good record stores right around the school, which was a real bummer. But my buddy Jeff and I used to ride our bikes way up to university of Pennsylvania, which was like a 20 minute bike ride. And they had this great, um, student run college record store. This is back when like college rock was, was what everyone called what we now call alternative. Yeah. And there was this really nice girl that worked there. Um, and she got to know us cause we'd go like once a week back when people still bought CDs and, and records and tapes. <laughs> um, and she got to know our tastes. And uh, I loved Mother Lovebone. I loved Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And, you know, Seattle wasn't exploding yet, but there was something happening. And uh, we went in one day, and, you know, this is after Andy Wood had passed away. And um, she's like, oh, you're the guy that likes uh, that Seattle stuff, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, why? Said, well, we got this tape. Um I guess the Mother Love Bone guys got a new singer and they have a new band. Do you want this cassette? And it was, I think it's like orange cover cassette of Alive. And it had Alive, Footsteps, and a cover of I've Got a Feeling by the Beatles. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I was so stupid. I was like, I don't know if I want it. Can you play it while we're like shopping in the store? She's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. So she played it and I, I thought it was cool, but it's really, you know, if you think about it, Andy's voice and Eddie's voice are really different. The music at, yeah. at that time was somewhat similar, but the voices were so different. And I was like, well, eh, it's cool. Sure. I'll take it. So that was my first exposure to Pearl Jam. Um, and, uh, you know, being honest, it, it wasn't, um, like an instant life changing thing that happened later. And when, and, uh, what, what happened to, uh, for them to really grab you? When did that happen? So that happened. Um, so first smells like teen spirit comes out, right. And Nirvana makes Seattle the explosion that it was. And the first time I heard teen spirit, I was instantly overwhelmed. I think like a lot of people. And then, um, the, the band was getting known, but they weren't huge yet. And they played in Philadelphia. They played a tiny little club called JC Dobbs. And my band played there back in college. It was so small, but it was mobbed. It was in, it, you couldn't move at that show. It was clear that something was happening mm-hmm. and I, I loved, I loved it. It was fantastic. And so then I started to really like, listen to a lot of the Seattle stuff and 10 had come out and I really liked 10. And uh, I won't go into it because it's, who cares? It's boring stuff. But I have <laughs> some, some daddy issues, we could call them, yeah. that are somewhat similar to Ed's. And the song release is what really got me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could I could be singing that song about my life experience with uh, with my dad, and it would be a perfect fit. So it was really that song that, um, that kind of, to this day, when I hear them play it live, I tear up and... I've been to shows with my son and uh, just thinking about him getting choked up right now. Uh, but yeah, that was the song release is the one that made me a, a lifelong fan. Have you, uh, have you seen them lie or so, so you say you've, you've seen them live when, uh, when did you first see them? I first saw them live at, I think it's called Waterloo village in New Jersey mm-hmm. uh, on the Lollapalooza tour. And actually I'll, I'll tell a short story here. I've met Eddie twice. The first, the first time was at Waterloo Village. So before they played, you people that uh, are old enough to remember the the first couple of years of Lollapalooza might remember this, but they had like side stages where they would do like carnival type stuff on stage. Uh, Jim Jim Rome side, yeah, Jim Rose Circus sideshow. That was one of them, and uh, and so we were hanging around there waiting for something to happen. And right near it, there was a table with like jewelry and other tchotchkes. And uh, I was there with my girlfriend and, and we're walking around and we're looking at these rings and she's interested in them. And I'm like sort of hovering over the rings, pointing at one. And this guy next to me and his girlfriend lean in and he says something like, like, oh, oh yeah, that's a nice one. And I look at him and he has this like blue sort of beanie on his head Mm -hmm. and a brown corduroy jacket. And I, and and I'm not a rabid fan yet. I'm a fan, but I'm not like super crazy yet. Yeah. And I realized right you know, he has those striking blue eyes (laughs) and I I realized right away it's him, it's Eddie. And, uh, I, you know, I don't freak out because I, I really wasn't a rabid fan and I just went Ed and he's like, yeah, Hey, how's it going? And and I'm short. I'm probably like the same height as him, five, six. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I didn't know what to say. And I was like, uh, when do you guys go on? He's like, Oh, we, we go on pretty soon, man. You should get over there. Like, okay, cool. See you later. And I walked away and, you know, and at that point I'm like, wow, that was cool. I I just met the singer from that band. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. And a few minutes later, 
the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow thing starts up, and this is disgusting. So just warning to anyone <laughs> listening, I'm going to share something super gross. Um, and you might even be able to find video of this. So th- they start doing stuff on stage where they like, uh, they're smashing TVs with sledgehammers. Uh-huh. And, and Eddie jumps up on stage and he smashes a TV with a sledgehammer. And then I don't know if it's Jim Rose or one of his buddies. It's like, all right, now we're going to do the, the stomach bile thing. I don't know what it was. Um, this guy drinks a beer and then puts a tube down his throat. And then usually they ask for a volunteer in the audience to drink the beer out of his stomach. Oh, yeah. But Eddie did it. Oh. It was so, oh, man, it was disgusting. So that was the first time I met Eddie. And, and then they played. They were amazing. I mean, this is this is 92 when they were just, yeah. I, I think, the best they've ever been. You know, and the crowd was crazy and Soundgarden played and I forget who else was on. Ministry was on that tour. Uh, I think Soundgarden was on that tour. It was, it was just a great day. Um, so anyway, I, I forget how we got into that, but yeah, that was the first time I met Eddie. Oh, cool. Well, let's 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 not front load this with the because you said you've met him another time too, right? One other time. One yeah. other time. So we'll hold that. Hopefully, <laughs> that first one wasn't the best one. <laughs> oh, this no, one's just like one, oh, I think it was better. Okay, cool. Yeah. See you. So, listeners, you gotta hang on. <laughs> Let's call the tease, I guess, maybe. Um, so this uh, this song comes from the Pearl Jam 20 soundtrack. And um, let's see, what what is there to say about this song? You want me to share my, my observations? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. sure, you can start. I'm, I'm going to start off with sort of a, a big generalization, and I'm going to blow up your theory that it's a song i i think it's really not a song i think it's a sketch and i think Mm -hmm. and and i say that in a very uh sort of a positive perspective one of my favorite things about this band early on they don't really do it much anymore at least not as much as they used to but they would do these improvs live all the time and yeah and even on b-sides and things they would release stuff like this which you know this didn't come out until pj20 but they were their uh, their how do I say it? Their creative collaboration early on was so rich and fruitful that Stone could just sit down and and just mess around and come up with some random riff. And if Eddie was yeah. around, he would just say stuff, sing stuff, sometimes moan, whatever. And and because they were so in sync creatively, it was interesting what they were doing. And I think you can see in PJ Twenty that's how they wrote Daughter. Daughter mm-hmm. seems to have started as one of these kind of loose jams or a sketch. Um, and I just, I love hearing uh, bands do this, uh, especially when they're at a point in their process where kind of no matter what they do, it's interesting. Yeah, I think sort of it was a lot more post 10 going into verses and then sort of after that too, before they started Vitology, where it was the the biggest part of that era of them just sort of jamming and sort of figuring stuff out together which is probably part of the reason why they started just giving everybody songwriting credit in that uh in that time too right because they had this they had this big backlog of songs that stone had written riffs and things that were intended for mother love bone that you could hear on like the dollar short demos and stuff and some other bootlegs Mm -hmm. and then you know there's that legendary week when eddie first came to seattle and all they did was play together for six days and some new songs came out of that. 
And then, you know, they go on and they release 10 and, and they're a huge success. And the record company's saying, okay, record number two coming up. You guys better have material. And they're on tour. How else do you write other than just find these moments to sit together on a tour bus or in a hotel and just see what you can come up with? Yeah, I think that... Um... Oh, no, not a transition out of that. Okay, editing this out. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Maybe later in their career, they had time to take a break and they could do some more kind of um, thoughtful songwriting at home when they had a few months off. But at this point in their career... Yeah, and in, in, in at that part, they were, you know, just like all together all the time, constant touring and then going to record right after that and stuff. And I think that... After that, they spent more time sort of apart, and, you know, that's where that sort of songwriting would come from, where people would bring in, you know, their ideas and, and having all that time of, you know, writing songs. It's kind of like, okay, I have pretty much a fleshed out song. Let's do that. Uh, it's like, okay, yeah, let's put the solo, you know, here instead of there, and, you know, let's skip this pre-chorus right. here and, you know, rep repeat this part or whatever, where they'd probably, you know, just do that standard music writing thing that you do when when you have a, a finished song that you're bringing to other people when they are working it out and you're kind of like ah you know what when you hear it played with other people you're like ah you know what yeah let's let's try it like this it sounds better like that as opposed to when you're just playing it by yourself yep yeah that makes sense um it, they also changed too you know they went from being pretty obscure when 10 first came out to blowing up to being one of the biggest bands in the world you know and then they so they do this sort of um you know, fruitful period of, of just jamming on the road to make up new songs. And then that goes really well. And then at, at the same time, you know, Eddie is becoming this figurehead sort of up there with Kurt Cobain as like the savior of a generation. And it seems like it was driving him crazy and he, he needed to have some control over things. And yeah. I think Vitology is sort of a, a representation of that where Eddie brought in a lot of those songs like finished, like not for you, I know is, is something that he, he brought in. Um, uh, so yeah, again, just a change in how they wrote songs. Yeah. I, I, I don't consider this a real song either. This is just, you know, them just kind of jamming and, you know, stone has a riff and a riff or two and just kind of like, Oh, let's hear, you know, just playing it. And Eddie just comes up and well, has a couple of words that he, uh, that you can, that you can decipher from that. But then the rest is, you know, just sounds and emotion and stuff. And I think that that really, <laughs> right. I don't know, even when you don't have words, right. you can, you can put emotion just into sound and yeah. that, you know, that can get something out of you. And I think that that's what a lot of people get out of him being in the band and, and, and the stuff they do. I, I know what you mean. I, I think too, that what you're talking about is representative of this, like this personality that Eddie would, turn on at certain points early on you could see it in interviews you could see it in certainly like the the uh, acoustic performances that they did at some record stores he was almost trying on this like mystical guru kind of thing mm -hmm. and then you know he totally backed away from that when the fame hit he was like no 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 i don't want anyone looking at me at all so his hair was always in his face after that and this song, the way that he's, you know, I pull myself away and fell from the sky and these different lyrics that to me, at least they do, they're, they're in that like mystical guru version of, of personality that he was testing out. You know, I, I thought it was really interesting, but I'm, I'm glad that he didn't go that route because I think some of the stuff that he did later on, like, um, yield and, and avocado, those are my favorite, that, that sort of version of his, 
singing is is my favorite. Yeah, he um I think he had a an air of authenticity that I think the whole Seattle scene had, you know, compared to the the you know, the butt rock sort of stuff that was around at the time that I think people could trust in, you know, especially, right. uh, especially disillusioned generation X that'd be like, Oh, you know, my parents don't understand me. And Oh, this guy's like talking to me. He's got, you know, he's a real guy. He's not, you know, just some guy that <laughs> the, the record company is trying to, to mold into somebody that they want and trying to make a star and stuff. He's just, you know, he's just a guy like me who was working at a gas station or whatever and just kind of comes out. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. He's he's singing about like like I was talking about release earlier, you know, he's singing lyrics like, Oh dear dad, can you see me now? Uh I am myself like you somehow. And then, you know, the other the next band on the radio is She's My Cherry Pie. Like, <laughs> you know, you can't get more different than that. Yeah, and I, I think that was something that um, you know, they would say like the um like pop culture moves in cycles and stuff where like a lot of the stuff was was uh sort of reminiscent of like the seventies and stuff where you have, you know, like uh, you know, Led Zeppelin or Bowie and stuff like that, where it's kind of like they might have seemed sort of larger than life and been these huge you know, rock stars and everything, but there was like a sort of sense of, uh, here's, you know, who I really am too, even though, you know, I'm wearing super skin tight jeans where you can see my dong, you know, hanging in there or, <laughs> right, right, you know, right. wearing weird wigs and makeup and stuff. But, you know, it's, I got, you know, I'm speaking truth here and I'm not just singing about cars or chicks. Right. But th I think there were bands too that that's, total line i'm a big fan of of the 80s metal you know pop metal hair metal whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it butt rock um there were bands that towed that line really well van halen you know mm -hmm. they could sing about girls and cars but it it was authentic enough that you didn't feel weird later on um certainly bands like warrant you know i regret enjoying warrant um uh, cinderella i think is another band that for the most part I I still think it, that stuff holds up. You know, that guy, Tom Kiefer, the songwriter mm -hmm. and singer, was coming from a real place. Um, some early Guns N' Roses holds up. Some of it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I think David Lee Roth, that's that's not a character. <laughs> like, that's that's who he is. No, that's who that <laughs> Yeah, so is, I think right? that, you know, <laughs> what he did was you know what he did and i think that that's where you know that was authenticity but that was you know on, on a certain end of the spectrum right. whereas i mean motley crew was you know i i think i think a lot of it was the the way that people dressed yeah that's a good point was what people sort of fell out of just sort of like ah, you know spend all that time to do all that when you know it's supposed to be about the music it's supposed to be about the rock where you really care you know, what you look like and trying to fit into those clothes and doing your hair and your makeup and stuff. Yeah. It was cer certainly a lot of weird bands in that era. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's bust out that other time you talked to Eddie. I think <laughs> <Right>. that, uh, <laughs> we've talked about this song. You, you get from it, what you get from it when you listen to it. I think it's just a good snapshot of the creative process and sort of where they were at that time as a young band of just sort of messing around and being able to, to come up with stuff that sounded good just because they, you know, they, they had the talent and the luck to, 
you know, find each other. Yeah. It's a, it's a peek behind the curtain on how the Pearl Jam magic happened in 1992 or whatever it was. Yeah. 90, 91. I got my notes. Oh, 91. Here. Oh, yes. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. I've, I've got to, I've, I've, uh, I've got to make sure that, uh, have some facts. <laughs> That's right. Those those forum members will call you out for sure. Oh yeah. Oh, you should have been there when. No, nobody's. <laughs> I haven't gotten any corrections yet. So if you, if you have any corrections, send them to uh, whitehouse.gov. That's because uh, I don't want to hear them. But uh, yeah, that's this is, uh, and I think that this is like just the kind of stuff that if you were to listen to them back in the day when all they had out was 10, maybe the single soundtrack, we're like, Oh, I want more. I want more. I want more. And you know, there'd be little bootleg things, you know, like the evil little goat or, you know, the yellow Ledbetter comes out and you're like, Oh, Whoa, what's this stuff? And it's, you know, just kind of the weird stuff that comes out and you're like, Oh yeah, I want to listen to it. I want to listen to all of it. You know, you would get obsessed with back in the day. Oh yeah, absolutely. When you would buy import singles just to get one new song, you'd spend oh, 10 yeah. bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you, uh, what was the second time that you met, uh, Eddie? Okay. So, uh, so I'll warn you ahead of time. It's a two part story. Often when I, when I've told this story, people, I tell the first part and they think it's done. And mm-hmm. so, so I'm prefacing with it. It's a two part story. So okay, my wife and I are dating for uh, we're, we're not married. We're dating. She's my fiance at this point. 1997. Uh, we still lived in New Jersey. And so driving into New York, not a big deal. It's like a 40 minute drive. Um, the Tibetan Freedom Concert was happening. This is the first ah. one on Randall's Island. Uh, Pearl Jam was not scheduled to play. Um, Radiohead played. U2 played. Of course, the Beastie Boys put it on. So they played. Um, you know, it was a really interesting show. Okay, computer had not come out yet, so Radiohead I think was still like doing stuff from the bins. Uh, and U two was in their Pop Mart phase, which yeah. was not hugely popular. I'm also a huge U two fan. I happen to love that phase, but whatever. That's an aside. So uh, my now wife, but then fiance and I are there with our good friends, uh, and you know we're walking around and stuff, and they get tired and they decide. Uh, let's go watch U2. So we watch U2 and, and at the very back of, it's like an outdoor stadium type thing. And, and it's all grass and like some stone type seating, like cement. Yeah. Um, and very at the very back, they sit on these cement step type things. And uh, and U2 finishes up playing. And uh, I say to my fiance, let's go for a walk. We'll go. The way it was set up is uh, if you walked past the stage to the right, there was another field sort of behind it that had food and vendors and things. Um, so we walk back there. We get some food. We're walking back. And to get back to watch the show, you had to walk past one of the backstage entrances, which is like a big fence. And I, the only reason I look is because the guy coming out of the, the uh, door in the fence, he's short like me. And he has this like sort of uh, short, very black afro. And he's wearing a bright blue backpack. So he was, he was like weird looking right? Like not famous at all, just strange. And I'm (laughs) a visual person being an artist and everything. So I just look at him and he was walking towards us and he lifts his head up and I see these two electric blue bright eyes. And it's this guy that I've met before. It's Eddie. And I, I just kind of freeze. And at this point I'm a huge rabid fan. Like this band changed my life kind of fan. And, and I elbow my fiance, Jen, Jen, that's Eddie. She's like, no, it's not. It's like, yeah. Oh, and he had, he had like a little scruff 
which, you know, was very unusual at that point. He just looked different. And, um, and he walks past us and I turn around and I, I mm-hmm. yell, Ed, Hey, Ed. And he like, he stiffens for a second, but then keeps walking. So he didn't, he knew no one was going to recognize him. And I guess he didn't want to be recognized. No security. He's just walking around by himself. And, and Jen's like, see, it wasn't him. I was like, no, it is him. Didn't you see him stop? She's like, whatever. You're such a nerd. I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go say hello. And she's like, well, I'm not. I'm going back to our friends that are sitting on the steps over there. So I said, all right, I'll meet you later. <laughs> so I follow him. And, uh, and he stops at one of these tables to like sign a petition. Because this was the, you know, the free Tibet show. And that was actually a really good thing that they were doing, collecting signatures. So I went up right next to him and I signed the petition. Mm-hmm. And he saw me looking at him and he looked at yeah. me. And uh, he stuck his hand out. And I said, hey, Ed, I, I just want to say hello. And um, and like, I was, I was very nervous. And I said, you know, I, I just want to say thank you. Your music changed my life. And he, he like did one of those handshake things where he like pulled me closer to him. And he looked me right in the eye and he goes, no, you did it. You changed your life. And he freaked me out. Like it was, it was really like passionate and not at all what I expected to hear. Like I, you know, I thought he was probably going to say, Oh, thanks. You know, blah, 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 whatever. And so I said, uh, I didn't know what to say. And I, I like froze and he, you know, shook my hand real firm and everything. He said, all right, see you later. And he walked away and I walked away like sort of in a daze, like, Oh mm-hmm. my God, I just met probably my favorite songwriter of all time, my favorite singer of all time. And I, I kind of acted like a doofus. And so I, like I collected myself and n- remember he's look up pictures of him from that. Cause they're actually him and Mike actually played the next day. They were unannounced, but they played a few songs. Look up pictures. You'll see what I mean. He looked really different. So no one is recognizing him. So this is part two of the story. So I start following him again mm-hmm. and it may be for 10 minutes. I'm keeping like a respectful distance. And finally he, he stops and he gives me a little bit of side eye. As if like, oh, is this guy going to be trouble? I put both <laughs> my hands up, like palms up, and I walk over to him and I say, I'm sorry. I'm not crazy. I don't want to bother you. I feel really bad about climbing up back there. Yeah. I see you're walking around by yourself. Do you mind if I just hang out with you a little bit and we just talk? And he like, he totally like just sort of calmed. He's like, yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about? And, and I was like, well, I think I've read in interviews, you're, you were a big U2 fan, right? It's like, oh yeah, I love those guys. I said, did you watch their set? He said, yeah, I watched the whole thing. Uh, and then he asked me, he's like, what did you think? And I was being honest. I said, well, I've seen them a bunch and I thought they were good today, but I, I was disappointed in the songs. You know, I like, I, I would have liked to, I forget what song it was. I would have liked to hear this song or that song. And he's like, yeah, I know what you mean. I, I was looking for some different stuff too, but uh, it's so hard when you play these shows. And then for like 10 minutes, we just talked about you too as, as a couple of fans. And there was no like, um, there was nothing weird about it. It was just, he, he's just super regular. It was, it was great. It totally calmed me down. Uh, he didn't seem to like be freaked out that I was like semi-stalking him. And, uh, you know, and at, at the end of like about 10 minutes, it was like a very natural end to a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, thank you so much for, for talking to me again you know, have, have a great day. And he gave me like sort of a bro hug type thing, you know, handshake hug thing. And that was it. And I went back to my fiance and our friends and I told them what happened and they all made fun of me. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it was, it was great. Cool. 
It was a really cool experience. Yeah, how many how many of you people listening have uh, had that experience? Write in and uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, turn that in the plug for me. <laughs> but uh, speaking of plugs, uh, I think we're here at the end of this of the uh, of the show. And uh, do you have any uh, projects or social media you'd like to uh, get out there? Speaking of plugs, right. I actually, I'm in a band called Plug. Um, oh, yes. I, uh, I'm the singer, songwriter, guitar player. We're a four-piece four alternative rock band based here in Providence. We just put out our first uh, EP. It's called Block Out the Sun. You can find it on Spotify. And I think, Brandon, you're going to share a link. Yep. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and all that. And keeping it in the kind of Pearl Jam family world and all that, we have uh, a really special guest did some background vocals on one of the songs on our EP. And sadly, he passed away recently. That's Sean Smith. So, yeah. So if you're a Sean Smith fan, you can hear him doing some vocals on one of our songs. All right. Awesome. You know what? Let's have you back. And then you can tell the story about how you got Sean Smith. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That's great. Yeah, see, that's, oh, yeah, see, now you got to listen to that <laughs> episode really, too, people. Teasing it out. I like it. Oh, yeah, that's how you do it. I've only done, you know, almost 20 episodes now, and I think I got the hang of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much for uh, for coming on, Fred, and yeah, I'll definitely have you back uh, once we start talking about uh, Versus songs. Awesome. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me. The Better Band Podcast is produced by ListenUpReno.com and Brandon Palomo and published using a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 license. Please visit creativecommons.org or email listenupreno at gmail.com for more details. All music played is owned by the respective publishers and copyright holders and is reproduced for review purposes only under fair use. You can subscribe to the Better Band Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or from shoutengine.com slash thebetterbandpodcast using your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ListenUpReno. I'm on Twitter at BrandEMP. If you would like to be a guest on a future episode, send an email to betterbandpod at gmail.com or send any insights and stories you'd like to share and I'll read them on the season finale episode. Again, I'd like to thank my guest Fred from the band Plug, and as always, this is Brandon saying, All my life I have searched for a car that feels a certain way, powerful like a gorilla, yet soft and yielding like a Nerf ball. <laughs> <laughs>